Our sermon text reading comes from Joshua 2, 1 through 11. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight and search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from and where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. We're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. That's why we're reading from Joshua. It makes perfect sense, I'm sure, to all of you. Uh, We find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 11, and we've been here for a month and a half or so, and we've been going through some of the individuals who are mentioned here as a diagnosis for what and how faith should look. I've said this almost every sermon. The book of Hebrews describes faith this way. Three components. The first of which is taking God at his word, believing his promises. The second component is having a foundational hope and trust in the unseen future that God has promised. And the third is being a person who acts accordingly according to what God has promised and according to the unseen future in front of us. And this list of individuals in chapter 11 are demonstrative of all three of these things. And and that's really what we've tried to diagnose is, is see faith as Hebrews defines it in these different individuals without doing a character study of them. The last person mentioned in the chapter with any commentary is the person Rahab. And Rahab is a fascinating young lady. Um, It's not often that from a pulpit we can talk about somebody as extraordinary as she is. And her story is recounted for us in the book of Joshua that uh, Jared just read for us. Uh, And so what I want to do is give you a little bit of historical context as to what's going on. 
tell you a little bit about the city in which we find Rahab and, and talk about what takes place there. And then at the conclusion, we'll see why she was such an extraordinary person of faith. The city of Jericho where Rahab resided, and I did a fair bit of research on this city. It's a city that's about five miles north of the Dead Sea. Um, it was on a fairly major thoroughfare, and it is most probably the oldest inhabited town in the world. Archaeology actually says that the town was first founded almost 9,000 years ago. And it was a city of some prominent size. It, it varied in size from between 1,000 people and up to 20,000 people, depending on, on the period of history in which we find Jericho. It started out as a group of individuals who were hunters and gatherers, uh, killing animals in the field and that kind of thing. Uh, and then they actually developed agriculture in Jericho. And, and it became a fairly uh, prosperous as well as well-educated place. It was always a fairly homogenous town because it was on a travel route. So there were lots of different types of people who resided in Jericho, uh, all of whom were Canaanites, all of whom were pagan. And at the time... Um, that Israel conquered Jericho, which was around 12,000, I'm sorry, 1220 BC. The town was somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 people, and it had a fairly fortified structure around the city. The town was not always fortified, however, and over the course of its millennia, there were a lot of people who came and conquered Jericho, and it lay dormant for a short season and then was rebuilt. And there were periods of its history where it had walls, and there were periods of its history that it didn't have walls. But uh, it, it's got a long and, and historic past. And in 1220 B.C., when the Israelites came against the city of Jericho, there was this young lady who lived there whose name was Rahab. Now, in terms of what was going on with the Israelites, this is their history when they came against Jericho. As you recall from early chapters in the Bible, uh, Israel came out of bondage of, as slaves from Egypt being led by Moses. And, and they wandered in the desert, and that generation of freed slaves actually grumbled against God and grumbled against Moses' leadership. And we were introduced to them earlier in the chapters in the book of Hebrews. And, and God brought against them and said, you will not, this generation, enter the land of promise because of your grumblings. And so that generation wandered in the desert for 40 years until that generation essentially died off. And a new generation came to the fore. It was also during this 40-year period of history that Joshua was being groomed as Moses' replacement. Joshua was part of this new generation, and he was a young man full of vigor and loved the Lord and 
was obedient to him, and he grew into leadership after Moses died, and he was actually the one that led this new group of people across the Jordan River into the promised land. Now, when I say the promised land, we, we need to remember that it is a central piece of what God has spoken to his people throughout all of history. Abraham was mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews as a great man of faith because God had promised him that I will make you a great nation. I will make you uh, the, the followers of your uh, people as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea. And I will give you a land and you will prosper. And those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. And Abraham lived his whole life without ever seeing that promise fulfilled. So when Joshua crosses the, prom, uh, the Jordan River and takes the people into this land, this is the first time that the promise to Abraham is fulfilled. And so it's called the promised land as a result. Joshua and his army defeated two kings of the Amorites on on the far side of the Jordan River, and they came in to the promised land, and God told Joshua, I want you to conquer the city of Jericho. And in the book of Joshua, God gives, it gives Joshua very explicit instructions about how he wants them to do this. He says, I want you to take your army and the people and march around the city walls, one time a day for six days. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times, and I want you to have priests blowing great shofar horns, horns that are about that long made out of sheep horns. And God promised that after the seventh trip around the city walls, you all remember this from the flannel graph days in Sunday school. I mean, those of us that went to Sunday school, for some of you, this may be the first time that you've heard the story. God said, on the seventh trip around, the walls of Jericho are going to fall, and I want you to defeat the city, and I want you to kill everyone in the city, and I want you to kill all their livestock. I want nothing left of the city of Jericho. You see, the city was filled with this group of individuals who were really good first-class pagans who, who had sacrifices to idols and, and did all kinds of other atrocious things. And it was the first city that represented God granting the promised land to his people. And he wanted that city to be destroyed. Well, unlike the unfaithful generation who had followed Moses, we now have a, a new generation of young stalwart men who are faithful and true. And these were people who actually believed God and took him at his word. And so when Joshua gave God's instructions to him, to the people, this is how they responded in Joshua chapter 1. Listen to this response. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. 
just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Now I want you to think about that last phrase. Joshua was a general and the leader of a nation. Can you imagine being that general and having your army say to you, the only thing we want out of you is be strong and courageous. I mean, man, I get goosebumps. How times have changed. All we want out of our leadership is strength and courage. Follow God. Follow God, and we will follow you to the ends of the earth. And anybody who doesn't take you seriously will be put to death. Those were the people who came against Jericho. Well, it's an interesting set of situations if we went through the book of Joshua, which we don't have time to do in detail. He, Joshua had explicit instructions. God told him exactly how the city was going to be taken. And, and so the question is, if you were a general and you had explicit instructions from God, and you were told how the city was going to be taken, why would you spend, send spies into the city? It's a great question, isn't it? I'm glad you asked. Joshua was a very thorough individual. He was an extremely competent leader, and he was an extremely competent general, and he wanted to know the lay of the land. He knew that God was going to be victorious and give him the victory, and, and he knew how it was going to take place. But he wanted to know what the interior of the city looked like. And he also wanted to know what kind of people were in there. And they, he also wanted to know what the people thought about the Israelites. And he also wanted to know what the people thought about the God of Israel. And so he sent in two spies. This can all be read about in Joshua. Now, if I were a spy, which I'm not, but if I were, there are two things that would be first and foremost on my mind. I would want to be disguised. I would want to look like the people with whom I was going to be walking the streets. And I would certainly want to not be noticed. I mean, obvious. I mean, very simple. All you spies out there do the same thing. Right? And that's why we don't know your spies. It, God had different plans. God had extraordinarily different plans. The two spies entered the city walls and they were immediately recognized as Israelites. And they were followed on top of that, and they were followed to Rahab's house. And the people who recognized the Israelites immediately went to the king of Jericho and said, we have a problem. We have Israelite spies in the camp and they have gone to Rahab's house. And the king, being any 
notable kings said, I want you to take a bunch of guys and capture these guys at Rahab's house, put them to death, and that'll be the end of these Israelites. And that's exactly what they did. They went to Rahab's house and they questioned her. And here's what Rahab did. She lied. She lied. She told the men that came to her house, I didn't know they were Israelites. They're not here. They've left. But if you hurry out the gates, you can probably catch up with them. When in fact, what Rahab had done is taken them to the roof and hidden the two spies in the thatching in the roof. Now, there is one mistake to make with the story of Rahab. There's only two verses on her in the book of Hebrews, by the way. Really only one. The, the mistake is to think that her act of faith was her lie. And, and I'll be really frank with you, and I want to be totally honest with you, because I did a lot of study and a lot of work on this and a lot of soul-searching. Was her lie right or wrong? That's a, that's a great American question, isn't it? Is it ever right to lie? I was faced with that question myself. A hundred years ago, I was in Europe, and I was working with a bunch of Europeans who were smuggling Bibles um, into the Soviet bloc. And, and then it came to be my turn to take a trip. And so we were going to take Bibles in, and a lot of Bibles, 3,000. And uh, so I asked these Europeans with whom I was working if the guard at the, at the border asked me if I have Bibles, what do I say? And without equivocation, they said no. You tell them no. And here I was faced with this moral conundrum. And I said, please explain this to me. And, and their response was, we are under no obligation to tell the truth to the enemy. Well, by God's good grace, I was never asked that question. So I didn't have to face that moral dilemma. And, and I'm not going to comment, and I'm going to leave you all hanging. Because I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but, but her lie was not what she was commended for. You see, she came from a culture, a pagan culture, and I can assure you it's the same today, where the truth doesn't matter. In fact, deception is part of the culture, and deception, quite frankly, is honored very much and very often. And, and I, I don't think for Rahab, she even faced a moral dilemma. But she protected the spies, and, and we know the rest of the story. She let the spies out of a window, and, and she lived on the outside of the wall that was soon to be destroyed. And the spies escaped and, and gave their report to Joshua. But the report really 
came from the lips of Rahab. And this is where her faith was seen. It's, just, it's a really extraordinary story. I've turned back to Joshua chapter 2. And, and if you want to turn there, um, it's a few books in from the front of your Bible. It, it's, it's a fascinating story because Rahab doesn't get talked about all that much. In Joshua chapter 2, the men are about to be hidden on the roof. But this is the conversation Rahab had with these two spies. Beginning in verse 9, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now here's the fascinating thing. Somehow Rahab had heard the story that a promise had been made to Abraham centuries before, and this massive throng of Israelites who had been wandering around the desert for 40 years were doing so in the expectation that God was going to give them a land. In the most recent future, Rahab had heard the story of the two cities that had been conquered by the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan before they had come into the promised land, and that had inspired fear. Fear in her and fear in the people of the city. That was what was going on in her mind and in the mind of the city. And so they were actually gathering the information that they were trying to gather. Now, before we go further, I've got to tell you Rahab's occupation. Most of us know this. Rahab was a prostitute. There are some commentators out there who want to protect her reputation and say that she was an innkeeper in a house that may have housed prostitution. That's not true. The word is explicit. She was a prostitute. She was a soiled dove. She was a shady lady. She sold her body to money, for money, and that's how she made her living. Now that is not the lowest rung on the ladder but few of us would say it is honorable. Which begs the question, why would the spies go to a house of a prostitute? And, and I really wrestled with a lot of different answers to that question, one of being they wanted entertainment themselves, which I think is a reasonable uh, uh, thing to question and, and in my research I, I, I determined that that was not the case and, and, and see in the ancient world in, on a town that was a crossroads businessmen were traveling through the town all the time from different nations and from the surrounding areas and, and I'm, I'm shamed to say this would be true but businessmen will also go to a house like that for entertainment because they're away from home and they're out from under the scrutiny of other eyes and, and things happen that shouldn't happen but do 
because of those things. And so Rahab was in a unique position to gather information and to know what the people outside the walls were thinking as well as to know what the people inside the walls were thinking. You see, the guys couldn't go to the marketplace and, and stroll around the fruit vendors and those kinds of things because they wanted to be inconspicuous. And so they went to a house where men gathered and men talked. And this is what Rahab was conveying to these two spies. We know that God has promised your people land. We know that he is already giving you victory and we're afraid. But her report continues in verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, those are the two names of the towns, whom you devoted, or whom, whom you devoted to destruction. She has a recollection of events that had taken place 40 years before when God brought them out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army was destroyed. All of this was in the mind of this prostitute whose name is Rahab. And she certainly knew about the most recent events where the two kingdoms were destroyed by the army of Israel who had made that pledge to Joshua, and then she continues in verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in heavens above and the earth beneath. Now just... Rahab had taken God at his word. She had heard about the promises made to Abraham. And she believed it. She did better than the generation before the Israelites that are now about to conquer Joshua. She had seen God deliver two nations into the hands of the Israelites and she believed in the unseen, which was that Jericho was going to fall. And she acted on it by hiding the spies. This is a woman of faith who concludes by saying, your God is the God of everything. Heaven and earth, and he is the only God to whom I should bow, and I'm afraid. I'm afraid of you guys, because God has done all this for you. You see, fear is a great thing. Fear should be a part of everyone coming to faith. She knew God was in the judgment business. And that God was coming to judge her town. And this is exactly the message that both Noah and Enoch, who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, preached their whole careers. God is coming to judge. Repent. 
And so what does Rahab say in the face of that? Save me. Save me and my household. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with me and my father's house and give me a sure sign. And the story continues, and, and most of us know it, and I won't take us all the way to the end, but she hung a scarlet cord out of her window to identify herself, and big oaths were taken between her and the spies. And she and her whole household and everybody that was in her house, when the walls fell, were spared. Her trust in God's word, her belief in his judgment, led her to say, save me. That's it. That's it. There is a place for fire and brimstone in the church, dear friends. God is a God of judgment, but he is the God who saves and spares. He is the one who brings to fruition his promises and saves along the way. And so in verse 31 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What an extraordinary, what an extraordinary story, you see. And, and I mean, we could go on and on about her occupation and, and all this, that, and the other thing. And, and I would say, probably historically, someone who had been saved out of that lifestyle, even though they showed great gratitude to God, would probably still carry a stigma, wouldn't you think? I mean, it's known. Everybody knew what she did. It wasn't hidden. But she was brought into the people of God. She was saved out of a terrible place because of her taking God at his word and acting on it. She, she by God's grace, was delivered and assimilated into the people of God. She was shown grace and mercy. But it goes so far beyond that. Because she's mentioned again in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 1. Now Matthew chapter 1, I promise you, is a chapter you read as fast as you can. When you're doing your daily Bible reading and you're going through the Bible once a year, it's because it's the genealogy of Jesus. And it's got a million names you can't pronounce and you have no idea who they are and they don't matter to you. But they matter a great deal if we know a little bit about them. Matthew chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. I'll read you a couple of names that you don't know and you want to get through quickly, but listen to this. And Ram, the father of Abinadad... And Abinadad, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, 
And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Okay, now we got to expand the picture. There's a guy named Salmon who's a leader in Israel. And he sees, we'll just call her a beautiful young girl, who has an extraordinary history. She was a prostitute and a pagan in a city that no longer exists. But she has been brought into the people of God by faith. And he marries her. And they have a son who's a half-breed, half-pagan, former pagan, and half Israelite. And this boy is Boaz. And Boaz, who becomes a leader of Israel, finds this Moabite woman whose name is Ruth, who also came from a pagan nation and is a Gentile, but has been brought into the people of God. And Boaz whose mom is a prostitute, redeems Ruth, this Gentile, and marries her. And these are the relatives of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus' ancestors are pagan, Gentile, prostitute, but have been brought into the kingdom of God. <laughs> I just, here's what went through my mind and we'll conclude with this. We look at Rahab and we think how extraordinary that a woman so low who had nothing could be brought in. And, and there is a message there. Don't misunderstand me. I mean, if you ever, I, I don't really meet people who say this, but I'm confident there are people who believe it. I could never be accepted by God because of blank. What I come in contact with, for me personally, is more thinking, I, I don't really think it out loud, but it, it's not all that surprising to me that I'm redeemed. You know? That, 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 I, it's not because I'm a good guy, and it's not because I've done all these wonderful things. I'm just white bread, you know? I'm not bad, I'm not good, so it's really not all, I mean, I had Christian parents, and so it, it's not that shocking that I've been redeemed. But it is. You see, it is. 
I am as far away from God as Rahab ever thought of being. A Gentile, a sinner, a pagan. And I've been redeemed. And I have been made a member of the family of God through Christ. Because he has made promises and he fulfills them. And I should have faith and hope and confidence in the unseen. And I should live accordingly. You see? And so Rahab is, is glorious. She's spectacular. We should name our daughters after her. We should. Because she's the picture of redemption. Being drawn out of filth and placed in the king's family. That is faith. And it is seen and she didn't deserve it. And she didn't earn it. And God says, you belong to me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your kindness and grace to call us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you that our sin is remembered no more. Thank you that it has been separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And Father, please grant us the gratitude to understand that we are no better than Rahab, that we deserve your grace no more, and yet we too, like her, have been put into the family of the king. All glory belongs to him. In Christ's name, amen.